Welcome everyone, you are listening to Do We Like Murder, a segment of the Long Overdue Podcast, a production of the Decatur Public Library in Decatur, Texas. We have a pretty busy episode coming up here, lots of, uh, lots of speakers and lots of books. Uh, we do have Dawn and Denise, our usual uh, purveyors of true crime, and I will be joining today. Uh, I have read a book, and we also have a very special guest, uh, Miss Kelsey. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she has also read a true crime book, and so we have four speakers. For and don't, don't be surprised, Chris said he read a book. That's yeah. not unusual. I do. Re- I read. Yeah, yeah, I do like, read books. I read a book, but I read a true crime <laughs> novel for this this episode, and I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to hear about all the murders. Uh, yes. Yeah. This is, it's fascinating. Yes. Well, I was inspired the last time, you know, because I've I've been recording these things for the last two episodes and just listening to Dawn and Denise talk about their books and how interesting it is. Yeah. You I, join in. Yes. On the the conversation with the questions and yes <laughs> so now i can actually have i can actually provide a some content now we can ask you questions yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm really excited about the book i really enjoyed it the one i read but i think that this time we're going to start with denise yep what book did you read denise i read killers of the flower moon the osage murders and the birth of the fbi by david gran birth of the fbi yeah that was actually pretty fascinating, the FBI. And the beginning was uh, very weird. But J. Edgar Hoover was a very weird man. Yep. There's no arguing that. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was a weird time. Like, I didn't know that they weren't allowed to carry guns, like, at the beginning. And I'm <laughs> like, how are you planning on doing anything? <laughs> yeah. Stop. I'm the law. Don't do anything else. <laughs> I'm the FBI, and this is serious. Yeah. yeah. Turn, turn yourself in right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> And in the twenties, I'm sure someone would just be like, "Nuh-uh, G-man, bye." <laughs> you know, it's just like, "What are you doing?" Okay, but eventually they got to carry guns, and a lot of them were just like, "That's a stupid rule. I'm carrying a gun." <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't blame them. I would have been like, "That's a stupid rule. I'm carrying a gun." Yes. You expect me to be all like trying to get murderers and so forth, and then just. Yeah, bank robbers and murderers who all carry guns, Yeah, but you can't. And this was still a very, you know, lawless time. From what I was reading in the the Osage County, the sheriff there was incredibly corrupt. Mm -hmm. So when the Osage started getting murdered, he was just like, meh, whatever. Okay, so can you tell me where Osage is? It is in Oklahoma. Okay, because isn't there like an Osage in um, Kansas? and, and oh, I don't know. Kind of like there's a Decatur in every yeah. state. Yeah. I was just kind of curious. There was that was movie this? about the play. Did you see that with Meryl <laughs> Streep? Something about Osage oh, County? Oh, yeah, yeah. Horribly depressing. Madison, I think, or something like that. Yeah, something oh, Osage Oh, Bridges County. of Madison County? No, not no. at all. <laughs> not at all. I was like, what? <laughs> that does have Meryl Streep. <laughs> but, yes. That's what I was getting confused, too. I was like... But no, that was this it. Also has um, has Julia Roberts in it. So yeah, this is in uh, Oklahoma, and it started in the twenties, maybe a little bit before that. But the main 
murder that he started talking about was in 1921. And so, okay, the Osage are Native Americans. And at first they had a territory in Kansas. And after that turned out to be some very nice land, the government decided that they shouldn't have it. So then they got moved over to Osage, Oklahoma, and so got sad. awful land that you, like... Oklahoma, w- Kansas, I mean, really, yeah. Hmm. I would pick Kansas. Yeah, they got a bunch of <laughs> they got a bunch of rocks and dry land, and you're expected to grow something here. Okay, sure. Aww. But that's what they got. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the quotes that I thought was very interesting was from... Um, one of the Native Americans who was like, you know what, this is going to be great because no white man is going to want this land. So Ruby, (laughs) because I mean, they were just kicked off the land that they were given. Yeah. And so he's like, they're not going to want this land so we can make it ours. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but then they discovered that there was oil on their territory. Um, But they had... A Native American lawyer who fought for them to have the mineral rights. So, nice. a bunch of oil was found on their territory. Mm-hmm. They got to keep all that, all those rights to that. So, people would come and drill, <laughs> and they would get some big checks coming in. That's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Until the U.S. government's like, oh, but um, I don't want you to have this money. And so they, like, seriously passed a whole bunch of ridiculous laws where they treated the Osage like they were incompetent people that could not manage their money. So if they wanted to spend their money, they had to have white guardians administrate it. That's ridiculous. So they ended up, um, a lot of them were married to white people and... It turns out that pretty much everybody was awful. Mm. They were all in it. They would marry people just to just for the money. That's terrible. And then they would start mysteriously dying. Oh, this person was poisoned. But since the law was so corrupt because everybody was getting a piece of that money, mm-hmm. nothing was actually investigated. Oh, my word. And so That's it was crazy. just like, oh, well, you know. And mainly because... Of all the racism, right? And, and Denise, uh, what year did all these events start? In the twenties. The twenties, yeah. okay. And so that's when it became more of a like they started trying to petition the government. To, you know, obviously these were not natural deaths. Mm-hmm. Like one person was shot in the head and left in a creek. Like this is not a wow. natural death. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, yeah. And so. They started getting, you know, people to to you know pay a little more attention and that's when J. Edgar Hoover sent Tom White. So he was a Texas Ranger and he decided to leave that field because he got married and he didn't want to die. Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he wanted to have a family. And one of the things when he joined the Texas Rangers was he was a single man. And they were like, yeah, you probably shouldn't get married because, you know, you never know if you're going to make it out of here alive or not. So, mm-hmm. but then, you know, he met someone and he was like, I want to get married. So he left that and 
was to have to join the FBI, and so he did, which is so much safer. Yeah. <laughs> Without a gun. Yeah. Without a gun. Yeah. <laughs> At least in the Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> you had to take your gun. <laughs> but, um, and so he was actually like the greatest person I have ever read about. Yes. Like, that. he had absolutely. Uh, as far as I could tell, and the way he was written, he had no prejudices against anybody. Um, all of his family members were pretty much in law enforcement one way or the other. Like his brothers were also Texas Rangers, and then they eventually also joined the FBI. Um, and at some point, one of his brothers was murdered, was killed in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. And after he retired from the FBI, he went on to be a warden at one of the prisons. And the guy that killed his brother was at that prison. Ooh. Wow. And he pretty much told the guards that he was to be treated like any other prisoner. Mm-hmm. That there was, you know. It's good to hear that in your story of corrupt law Yes, people, that there was that at least one yes. person. There's some hope in there. He could have easily have been like, oh, that guy had an accident. And yeah. And at this time period, no one cared. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? A murderer died? Well, <laughs> we should not investigate that anyway. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He was like, he should just be treated like anybody else and gave him that same humanity. And mm-hmm. I was just mm-hmm. like, wow. That's good. Mm-hmm. But he was really the only one that was like trying to solve what was going on. No, you had mentioned that there were some other people that were on this case that didn't end up so well he was not one of these people was he no pretty much anybody that tried to investigate because you know when the authorities weren't doing anything those agents hired private investigators to go in and try to find out and either they were paid off pretty quickly um, and didn't actually investigate or they would die or mysteriously disappear that's not good sounds like the mob yeah Mm. yeah wow and so, I think one of the my favorite things that I was reading about, one of the weird facts was, there was a, I think he was an attorney, and he went and saw um, a client of his who was, who was dying, mm-hmm. and he was pretty sure that he was being poisoned by his, by his wife. Wow. For the money. And um, so, he went to talk to him. And he told them that he had all this evidence about some of the other murders because they were all pretty much orchestrated by the same people. Mm-hmm. And so he gave him all this evidence. And before he left, he had told his wife, who had just had her 10th child. Ooh. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where he had hidden all the evidence that he had collected so far uh-huh. that there was some money there for her as well in case something happened to him uh-huh. when he left to go talk to this guy before he died. And on his way back, like, he got on a train to go back home, but he never got off that train. And they found him later naked, and, like, he had been pushed out of the train. And all the evidence was gone, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. When the wife went to go get the money, because it's now a single lady with ten kids. Uh-huh. And where the evidence was, everything was gone. That's, oh, my gosh. That's yeah. terrible. But one of the things that was, um, the weird fact about that was that they didn't know where he was. Like, he was missing. Like, he got on the train, and then when the train got to the station, he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So, he, he was missing. So, what did they do? They called the Boy Scouts. What? <laughs> well, who else are you going to call? 
That's who I always call first <laughs> in danger. Okay, so first of all, who is they? They called the Boy Scouts. Who was that? The authorities. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the Boy Scouts oh involved because they're always prepared. Yes, they are. They know how to track things. <laughs> exactly, and they know how to track things. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't know if the Boy Scouts were the ones that found him or not, but he was found later on. I hope it was. <laughs> Except for not, because that's traumatizing to the, the Boy Scouts. Scouts children. Exactly, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. These I don't want the Boy Scouts to find Me them, neither. Though. I take it back. Poor children. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I was like, What? <laughs> let's call the boy scouts of america wow let's do it um but yeah anybody that actually tried to help or solve the case or anything like that died um and one of them was married to um one of the osage and pretty much all of their family like all their family members had died either from flat out being shot in the head or being poisoned or something. Mm-hmm. They never called it poisoning because no one was actually investigating it. But like she ha- suddenly had a really like debilitating illness and then died. Mm-hmm. Probably poisoned. Yeah. Right. And so um, he'd been gathering all this evidence and his house blew up. Of course it did. <sighs> and so, I mean, it's just like anybody that tried to actually help or solve the case would die but not tom white not tom white so how many people died trying to solve several yeah i didn't count but there was several and a lot of the private investigators were just paid off they were like oh yeah well how about we give you this much money and then you never talk about it ever again wow and it was a pretty big conspiracy for some of them the murders. The thing that the FBI did was they pretty much tried to like pin all of the murders mm-hmm. on this one criminal or like enterprise. Okay, but all these people were marrying Osage for the money, and then they would die. Uh-huh. So it wasn't all just this one dude orchestrating yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, that's rough. But the FBI was like, "Well, let's just all like put it together as one thing and tie a nice little bow on it, and we'll call it done." Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily the case. So what happened? Well, the the guy that they pretty much pinned it all on was in the oil business. And he came to Osage and he pretty much became friends with, you know, all the prominent people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the government passed that law about needing a white guardian... To Ugh. administer your money. That's so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> he became a guardian for many of his friends. Um, okay. And so, and the way um, those rights worked was if you were Osage and you died, then it went on to your husband. Okay. Or wife or whatever, your spouse. But if there's several Osage in the family and they die then it just keeps going to the next Osage. Okay. Up until you get to the to the last person that's that's alive. Okay. And then if that person dies, then the spouse gets the money. Okay. So So the spouse is considered the guardian then. Mm-hmm. Okay. The white. The, yes, the white guardian. Okay. White guardian. Yeah. yeah. And so 
he was friends with a lot of people and everybody thought that he was, you know, this great guy trying to help out. He was one of the people that was like, oh, you know, the authorities isn't, they're not doing anything. Let's hire some private investigators. You know, let's try to figure out what's going on because y'all, this is weird. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that he was the one pretty much orchestrating the whole thing. (sighs) And he had doctors that were working for him. So, like, the two, there was two brothers that were doctors Mm -hmm. that would be like, oh, well, what's wrong with you that you have diabetes? Let me give you a shot of insulin. Oh. You don't actually have diabetes. I'm just poisoning you because I'm your doctor and I'm being paid to. Mm. Wow. And so, like, it was this huge, just, he was orchestrating a lot of it. Yeah. And his son was married to Molly Burkhart who at this point had inherited several head rights mm-hmm. from her family members, her sister that was shot in the head, her other sister that was blown up in that house, mm. her mom, like they all died. And so all that went to her. Mm-hmm. And then so she was married to Ernest Burkhart. And throughout m- most of the book, I'm like really hoping that Ernest is not an awful person, but everybody mm. was an awful person. Yeah, oh. that's terrible. Everybody that I read about was awful except for the Osage and Tom White. Mm. And I was just like, oh, you thought this person was a good person? No. Oh. He knew exactly what was going on, and he married her for the head right. And then as she progressively got richer. He's like, I'll wait a little bit longer. I'll wait a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. So sh- he killed her too then? No, he didn't get a chance. Oh, that's good. <gasps> mm. Yay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tom might put a stop to, to all of that once he... And then for... The longest time, like, they couldn't arrest Hale, which was the big prominent guy that everybody was friends with and was orchestrating a lot of the murders. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but a lot of. And because he was rich and the system was corrupt and there was a bunch of racism. Like, 12 white guys on a jury. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them still had the opinion that, well, you know, that these people were not human. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it was. They, they were like, "Is he even going to be convicted?" And ultimately, like, they really had to get Ernest to turn on him. He claimed that he didn't want Molly to die, but also he knew what was going on. So, mm-hmm. had he been like getting her poisoned at the doctor, or what? Yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, she'd been getting insulin shots. So everyone was diabetic, and everyone was getting everybody insulin was shots. Dying, yeah, Ugh. everybody was dying. Gosh. Rampant and so, diabetes. But at some point, he did actually feel guilty about the things that he had done. That's good. So he did. Testified. She get to give him an insulin shot. <laughs> <laughs> no. <Darn it>. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he did eventually turn and give state evidence against his uncle, and that was really the only reason that he got convicted at all. Because wow. if he had just been like, "Oh no, I'm going to keep my mouth shut," mm-hmm. he wouldn't have gotten convicted. Well, I'm glad there was some good, one good character. One good, one in, good person yeah, in yeah. all of this. And then one weak person who... Yeah, who finally was, buckled. Yes. Mm. So this was just a huge conspiracy to murder, mm-hmm. is what it was. Did it say how many people were killed over the course of these events? And I'm sure it did somewhere. But you didn't take account of that. I did not. That's okay. It, it sounds like mainly it was focused on oh, this uh, one family. Yeah. Um. But but that's really kind of amazing if you think about it, because like the one guy who's orchestrating the whole thing was able to convince 
other people to murder for him, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the doctors and, you know. Well, everybody was getting money. Getting money. And then when you had this racist perspective of they're not completely human, Mm -hmm. like they had this mindset that were like, well, if I'm getting money and they're not really human, I'm not really doing anything that Mm -hmm. wrong. So they just convinced themselves, I'm sure, that goes down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, you're, you're a white guardian for the Osage and you say oh you need a new car okay well since you can't go buy yourself a new car I will go get a new car for you and then you just pay me back from your account Mm -hmm. and so they'd go buy some cheap car and then be like this is worth three times as much Mm. wow and and one of the things that was like really awful was that the Osage knew they weren't stupid, mm-hmm. but they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, the law didn't care if they were being killed. The government was the ones that put these people in charge of their money. Right. So, what were they going to do about it? Yeah, who were they turning to yeah. at this point? Mm-hmm. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It's Tom White. That's who they're turning to. Yeah, Tom White. Tom White. He was the only the only person at the end of that. I was just like. I feel a little bit better just knowing that there was at least one person alive somewhere in our history <laughs> that was like Tom White. <laughs> because like going in, I knew I was like, this is going to be some serious racist stuff. Mm. And then just like right off the bat, I'm like, called it. There it is. <laughs> like all over the place. <laughs> it was really good. Like it was a really good book. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about giving up on it a couple of times because I was just like, this is a lot of racism. Yeah, but then I was like, the Boy Scouts of America were called. They called the Boy Scouts. <laughs> they called the Boy Scouts. Like <laughs> it just got serious. <laughs> How can I give up on this story now? <laughs> right? I was just like, such and such disappeared off of a train. They called the Boy Scouts, and I'm like, well, you got me now. <laughs> yeah, so, locked until the end. <laughs> so, did it talk about how many people were convicted in this conspiracy? Or? Um. Yeah, did the doctor get in trouble? Lose his license for injecting people? With yes, there was a. It was brothers. They were mm. both doctors. That's good. At least I hope they were actual doctors. But who knows? They might not have been actual That's doctors. True. They could just say, "I'm a doctor." I'm a doctor. Yeah. Several people. A lot of people died. That's yeah. From all over the place, a lot of people died. It's like, oh, you're going to talk against me? Oh, you're dead. You're dead. That so was, that's how they just solved their problems in that era. Yeah. It's just, just kill everybody. Was it all insulin poisoning? Was there any other um, type of poison? You know, you did say something about gunshots. So some yes. people were shot. Some people um, were blown up. They weren't poisoned by insulin. They were just told that that's what they were getting was uh. insulin. So they were being poisoned by something else. And oh, so getting, it wasn't even insulin that they no. were getting? Uh-uh. But I think if you take insulin regularly and you don't need it, that would kill you. <laughs> yes, it sounds like but that would be bad for you. Insulin yeah, at this yeah. time period was just barely being discovered. Oh, okay. So it was a, a new treatment oh, for okay. diabetes. So, <laughs> okay. so nobody really could even yeah. say anything against I it see. at yes. that point. <sighs> so they were being poisoned. Uh, yep, a couple people got shot in the head. And the brothers, the the town doctors were the ones that were doing the autopsies. So there was a lot of like, oh, (laughs) I don't know where that bullet is. Not in this dead person. So must have made its way all the way through. Yeah. Clean exit. Even though there's no exit wound. (laughs) Don't know what happened. But they're writing the paperwork so they could write exit wound. (laughs) And then they'd have to have someone come in, exhume the body, and then check it again to make sure. 
yep. and they were operating a system where they didn't even expect that, that to be an yeah. option. So it's crazy. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend it because it is really good. Mm-hmm. But also, just be prepared that there is racism all over the place. This he, is a book about murder and racism. Yes. Mm. David Grant is not racist, but he, just talking about any of it, it's just like, everybody was racist. Yeah. <laughs> people die. Mm. Lots of people. For, for money. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It was... That's terrible. Did it say anything about like the state of the the Osage after all that was resolved? Like, um, did it get better for any of them? Do or? they have their money now? Yeah, <coughs> there is no money now. Dang it! At some point, um, there just wasn't. Like, like they would still get a little bit of money coming in. But like all the big amount of oils was already yeah out, and all the big mm-hmm. money was being spent. It was already, it was already distributed and such. Mm-hmm. Mm. It just makes you sick. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Does it eventually, it. like the laws were, I mean, were changed to where they didn't need a white guardian. But at that point, like probably in like 1972, upon, yeah, or something, <laughs> something like or that. even something even more sickening. Yeah, and so a lot of that money had already been spent. So they appointed white guardians. If you were declared um, competent mm-hmm. and you didn't need a white guardian, well, that was. That was, you know, preferable, but you still got an allowance. Like, the government only let you have this much of your money. They can't win. Like, there's no winning. There know? was none. And Tom White had, a, like, quite an elaborate system going on. Like, he was really the only one, when he came to town, that everybody knew was the law. He had undercover agents, like, infiltrating oh. and so forth. So that was also really interesting because he, he did actually have... There was actually one Native American FBI agent. That's and good. So Very cool. He went in as well to try to figure stuff out, and he was undercover. And a lot of them were undercover. Um, they had an informant who was a criminal, who was a quite the criminal. <laughs> and um, they had, this was for an entirely different case, but they had him go be undercover, and then he like killed a cop. <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, so that's pretty much the FBI's take wrong. on that. Was like, oh, whoops. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <Bad idea. laughs> not talk about that. that <laughs> right. happened. Oh but at some point, Tom White was just like, "I'm gonna have to talk to some shady people and try to get them on our side here because everybody's awful." Yeah. <laughs> and how are you going to get in? Yeah. And so the, he did have one person that was also quite the criminal. And so, but he was willing to, to help out a little. And ultimately, he did come and deliver some evidence as well. But he almost, like, he knew who it was. And it was just like being stopped at every turn. Like, he. It's like, this is it. We should arrest him. And for what? Like, what evidence do you have? And he's like, well, I've got this. Well, that's not going to be enough. And so it was just like, he was constantly being, like, trying to stop him. Mm-hmm. Um, while the FBI, like J. Edgar Hoover, wanted this case solved as quickly as possible. So. So was uh, the agent, his life threatened at all? Does he? Um, he... 
didn't really seem like he had much concern for that. Mm-hmm. And he, um, I think because it really seemed like these men were untouchable. Mm-hmm. They didn't really do anything to to Agent White. They just thought he's another lawman. Yeah. Probably someone who I'm fixing to try to pay off and that's yeah. not really and a in, concern. And even if he got close, like they were pretty confident that their money and their prestige was gonna get them was gonna get them off. And they almost did. Probably I'm white and you're gonna have to take the uh-huh. the word of these less than people, so why should I worry? Yeah. Back mm-hmm. to that mindset. Mm-hmm. So sick. Mm-hmm. So crazy yes so there was a lot of stuff going on but it was all very interesting and terrible mm-hmm. interesting and terrible interesting and terrible but at least we got the fbi <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> the fbi is there was a lot you hear about like the beginning of the fbi and i'm just like how did you operate mm-hmm. <laughs> seriously how, how did you, you get <laughs> how did you solve anything how did you get anything done dang hmm but they did. Very cool. That's it. That was mine. Any other questions for Denise on her Killers nope. of the Flower Moon? It's a great title. Yeah. All right. So, Chris, is it you? Yeah. I've got a better title. Oh, oh. throwing down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the book that I read is People Who Eat Darkness. Ooh, that is. It's, I'm sorry. Denise, it is better. <laughs> The true story of a young woman who vanished from the streets of Tokyo and the evil that swallowed her up. It was actually the title that was probably the first thing that grabbed me. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that it took place in, like a lot of it takes place in Japan. And having been, you know, a lot very interested in Japanese culture and, and society and, you know, things that come out of Japan for a long time, I was like, you know, this is probably relevant to me. So... As I was looking into reading this book, you know, I was almost skeptical at first because the writer is uh, is British. So I was like, you know, what kind of perspective is this guy going to have? Is mm. he going to be, you know, biased and, and present like that Japanese, you know, everybody in Japan is this certain way or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes sense that he's a British because the girl that was killed, that the, the book is about, uh, Lucy Blackman, it was, was British. Um but, you know, after I started reading it and, and reading further and further into it, uh, any doubt about, like, his, um, any kind of bias or perspective or anything was just completely obliterated because um, I feel like he was just really, uh, I mean, he's just, he was a reporter. Uh, the writer was Richard Lloyd Perry. So yeah. when, when was the book written in the? Um, it was written over the course of 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started working on the story when it first happened, when uh, Lucy Blackman just disappeared. And when was ju- that? Uh, in July first of two thousand. Okay, two thousand. Yeah, because that was actually okay. that was like his assignment. Is he was you know he was a London or you know British reporter, mm-hmm. um, and he worked for the Independent and also the London Times. Um, but he was you know kind of that was his place was Japan, and you know I, he doesn't really go into a lot of detail about it, but I get the impression that he you know. He liked living there and and appreciated the the culture and everything because he actually lived there for a long time. He had home in in uh, in Japan. So anyway, um, he even goes into detail in the notes and acknowledgments to discuss that you know this book. It says a lot of negative things about like the the Japanese law enforcement and things like that. But 
um, he said that all the individuals that he worked with, the police, the detectives, everybody was, you know, kind and and uh, and honorable, and he never but felt with, but dealt with any individuals except on very rare occasions that you know he got any kind of a negative response from. But uh, so they weren't corrupt, like uh, what Denise is. Right. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't he that was. they were corrupt. His his final statement about that was that it wasn't the individuals that were the problem, but it was a system that was in need of reform. Mm. Oh. And so, in that regard, I mean, so as I talk about this book, I preface it that um, you know there's a lot of things, like he said, that were kind of spoken against, like the the law enforcement in Japan, and and that sound like maybe they're negative against the society or whatever. But uh, but I I see that you know Japan is a very I mean it's westernized mm-hmm. now yeah so anything that's in this like that takes place in this book in Japan I mean to me this is almost like a parallel for the things that we have going on in the United States things like that so I don't think of it as like like oh this is you know Japanese culture and this kind mm-hmm. of stuff goes on there and later he discusses that you know like that. Um, you know, there's twice as many people in Japan as there are in Great Britain, mm-hmm. and yet the crime is like less than half. Hmm. Or, you know, he had percentages and stuff. But anyway, he says that, you know, Japan is, despite all the things that happened, this is a, it's a safe place. You know, there's hmm. very little com- crime compared to the rest of the world. And, and what does he do- attribute that to? Um, or did he say? He attributed it to the people. Okay. He said that it was, you know, part of the culture that, that everybody's just respectful and there's just not an in, as much of an inclination towards crime in their wow. society. So anyway, enough of that. Let me get on to what actually this book yeah. is about. <laughs> yeah, who died? Let's go to the murder. <laughs> so uh, Lucy Blackman was uh, she was a British, uh, you know, from Great Britain. Uh, she was a stewardess or flight attendant for a while um, before she decided that she was going to go to Japan with her friend Louise. And uh, they became hostesses and hosted at a hostess club in a, a area of Tokyo called Roppongi. I think that's how you say it, Roppongi. Okay, okay so no that sounds here. a little shady. To yeah. Me, do you want to explain what a hostess? Yes, that's where yeah. I'm going next. Okay. So, and and that's another thing that was really awesome about this book is that it had so much about like Japanese culture and society, and especially like how they deal with crime and things like that. It was all very like. That's all the crime stuff apart. It was very educational. But um, I was surprised because I knew what hostesses were before I read this book. Um, a hostess in Japan, it kind of comes from, it's similar to the, the geisha tradition mm-hmm. of the, the women who, you know, it's their, their job and they're, they have special training in entertaining men. Mm-hmm. But not in, like, traditionally it's not in, like, a sexual way, like a prostitute Okay. Or you know, stripper or anything like that. It's more of a social thing. Like they sit down, they serve. You know, the geisha would like they'd serve tea, mm-hmm. and they would just sit down and and talk and attend to to the men. So the hostess tradition, uh, it it kind of comes from that same that same uh, the geisha tradition. Except uh, some of the stuff he talked about is that it's a little variable as far as what's expected from some of the different hostesses. Mm-hmm. And this I wasn't I wasn't aware of because you know I heard of the hostesses that for the most part that's all they do. They sit down with uh you know these Japanese businessmen that can pay by the hour mm-hmm. and you know they can request a certain girl and uh 
they you know they light their cigarettes and they serve their mm-hmm. drinks and they just sit down and talk with them. I think I think here in America we call that the girlfriend experience. I was just yeah. gonna say yeah. something about yeah, that. Yeah, so so regardless, <laughs> you know, regardless, I mean, of how you feel about it, you know, certain they talked with people that had been hostesses and people that had uh, experienced that, and um, you know, you don't have to be okay with it or agree with it, but for the most part, it was it was safe to be a hostess. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like prostitution. You know, you weren't expected to do any kind of favors or anything. It was just talking. And, you know, some of the hostesses talked about how boring it was and how... <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I have to sit here and pretend that you're a very fascinating man mm. while I light your cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. I just, this th- this whole concept is really, like, why would you... Okay, you're a hostess with an airline, and then you decide. You get to choose this as a profession. Why would you do that? Um, so, Lucy Blackman, she, uh, I think she was kind of a restless, a restless soul. To an extent, okay. um, but she had a lot of debts. Uh, I was say it probably paid. Uh, it probably paid yeah. a lot. She yeah. accumulated well, that's a what lot. What they say about like strippers yeah. and all that yeah. stuff—that the reason they do it is because it, they get a lot of money. I guess it just depends on the person, their personality, and what they're okay yeah. with. Doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and from what this sounds like, like unless they were working for like a really shady club. Being a hostess was just that. Like, you're yeah. just going to sit down, pretend that this guy is the most fascinating man you have ever spoken to in your life. Yeah, and get and paid, get paid for, for it. For it. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Right. And then, you know, no touching or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to pour your drink and make you feel like the big man mm-hmm. without actually having to touch you. Yeah. yeah. And so, in some of the, like, the lower end ones, um, they could get, make you know, make up to, like, $100 a night uh, for working, like, five hours. But in some of the higher end ones, they'd you know be like six hundred, you wow. know, and up and up depending mm-hmm. on, uh, on your popularity. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, she had a lot of debts, and her friend Louise um, had this you know idea. It's like let's go to Japan, and we'll you know we'll find work there, and, and it'll be great, and you can pay off all your debts, and it'll be you know an adventure. And she, I think that at, at over the course of like. Uh, Explain like her process of going there. She kept saying like she didn't even know why she was going. She just um, it didn't sound like it was something that she really wanted to do. But but she did. She just she did. She mm-hmm. went with her friend. She Louise was a friend that she grew up with, so she trusted her, and they went there and did it. Um, her mom was very into like uh, you know superstition and and supernatural you know, mediums things like that. And her mom had said that. You know, she had this feeling that if she went to Japan, she would never see her again. Mm-hmm. And she even tried to take her to a medium to, like, get some, you know, get, like, a reading to kind of dissuade her. Uh-huh. And she didn't go, so. Oh. Um, so, anyway, this is this is what I found really interesting. Because, like I said, I knew about hostesses mm-hmm. in Japan. But there are, you know, there were clubs where they had hostesses from, uh, you know, European countries mm-hmm. and, and North America. And also, of course, like. Thai and, and Chinese mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But there was whole, you know, segments in this, especially in this Roppongi uh, area in Tokyo, there was a lot of clubs that were about having, like, Western hostesses. And there was, of course, there was a, a segment of of Japanese men that that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. They wanted to go and, and have, like, a Western girl be their hostess. So so she went and did this. Um, she only was only there for, I think, 50 days. Mm. Before she disappeared. Dang. So here's the thing. Um, the hostesses and a lot of these clubs mm-hmm. are encouraged 
to go on what they call a Dohan, which Dohans are like dates that they go on with these men that they serve in the hostess clubs, but they're outside of the mm. outside of the establishment. They're like at restaurants and sometimes even like at their homes and things like that. Wow. That's just asking for it. Never yeah. move to a second location. That's exactly correct. <laughs> right? Yeah. Never, never. Yeah. So, um, so Lucy, you know, she, uh, she was 21 when this happened. Um, and she was, you know, she had all this debt and she was already, she was living a rough lifestyle in Japan anyway. She was, you know, um, it didn't help that, you know, it was, uh, it was Tokyo, you know, it was mm-hmm. a, night, a nightlife. So she was spending more than she was making, even if she was making a lot. Oh, she yeah. wasn't making up anything. And, uh, in these clubs, you know, you get rated by how many requests you get in the hostess clubs and how many dohans you go on. And she was behind in her request and in her dohans and stuff. So there's this one guy that came in one time and, uh, I think he was like in his fifties when he started, when, you know, when he met Lucy, um, but anyway, he came in and he had spent a night with her and then he requested that she go on a Dohan and he took her out to his home by the beach and that's where she disappeared. Uh, she called her friend, you know, to say that, uh, you know, I met this guy and he's going he's gonna to buy me a cell phone and, you know, all, all this, you know, these promises. And then Your little two, girl, here's your candy. Yeah, two, oh, hour, two hours later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after two hours, they were like, she didn't come back, and they were wondering where she went. Um, so she disappeared, and then from that day on, her friends, uh, like Louise and uh, and her family, uh, they spent, like, months and months, like, I think, I'm, I don't remember how long it took before they finally, I think it was a year before they finally found her remains. Mm. Um, but they spent tens of thousands of dollars on like private investigators, mm-hmm. on tips, on frauds, mm-hmm. uh, trying to find her. And it took them, I think it was like six or seven months before they finally found the guy. And it was, yeah, like a year before they found her remains. Was he very, very rich? Yes. He was a, he actually really was a wealthy, like a, a businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, the name he went by was Joe Giobara, and he was a Korean Japanese. Um, so there was a, uh, a lot of like Japanese people that had come from a Korean heritage because Japan had colonized Korea. And what they did is they, you know, they'd send their business people over to Korea. Uh, to manage the resources and, and people over there, and then they'd send Korean workers over to Japan. So there's still a lot of like racial tension between mm-hmm. Japanese and, and Koreans. And so uh, Joji Obara, which was his third name, um, he also went by... I wrote these down. His original name was uh, Kim Sung Jong, and then he changed his name to Seisho Kin, which was like the Japanese... Because his original name was Korean, and then he had mm-hmm. like a Japanese version of his name, and then he changed his name to Joji Obara. Um, this is one of those in- interesting facts that uh, Perry included in the book was that uh, these you know these Korean workers that were sent to Japan, um, it was even to the extent that when they were given Japanese names, they they were usually given names that would identify them as these Korean Japanese, so everybody would know. 
So it really didn't matter that their mm -hmm. name was changed anyway. Right. Everybody so would like know, and they'd be judged by their mm -hmm. their name. Uh, so anyway, yeah, he was his dad somehow, against all the odds, had become very wealthy and accumulated a lot of uh, a lot of wealth from I think like pinchinko machines and the other investments. Uh, and then Joji Obara, he you know he inherited a lot of that, and then he became a property manager. Which was, you know, big. It was. He kept saying it was like during the bubble era in Japan, like the economic bubble, and mm -hmm. you know, property was was huge. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he became a property in developer and investor. And uh, man, this I was like, I knew this was going to be bad because I mean, it's murder. It's murder. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But it's by the time I got to the end, this was like way worse than I anticipated going into this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so. Anyway, there's a lot of factors involved here, but I'll just say, um, Joji Obara, he had been a serial rapist for, like, decades. And and this is what, like, he had a journal, and and they went through his journal and the evidence, and he had accounts of, to like, 209 people, women. Wow. And they think that, like, the, the number, based on, like, all the videos that he made, because he would record these events. Mm. They think it was like between 150 to 400 women, and wow. so so what he would do is he you know he'd meet these these girls, and uh, you know he'd lure them to his his little apartment on the beach, and he drugged them, and then you know he raped them, and he did this for years. But he didn't kill them. No, he never. That was the thing. He never intended to kill any of them. The murder okay. was not his intent. Okay. Uh, so this one was an accident. He just overdrugged her or something? There was two accidents. Oh. Okay. The, the first time was uh, Karita Ridgman. Yeah. Uh, 1992. Karita um, Ridge, Ridge, Ridgeway. Uh, you know, she was doing the hostess thing in Japan as well. She had done several jobs and she had, um, you know, worked in other establishments as well. But uh, she met him, you know, and... And they don't know as many details, or at least he didn't go to, into as many details about her. But uh, but he did, you know, he took her to his place and drugged her and, and raped her. And then uh, he took her to the hospital. Um, he called her parents. Did he call her? I think I think he called. He did call her parents. And the you know, she had been informed. They had been informed that she was there um, in the hospital. And you know he, he used lots and lots of fake names, so he you know he talked to them under a fake name. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, yeah, what had happened is he overdrugged her. He used like too much chloroform or something, and it caused her to have liver failure. <gasps> but when uh, when he called, you know, he called like he was really concerned. He was like, "I mm -hmm. loved your daughter, and mm -hmm. I took her to the hospital because you know she ate some bad oysters or something, something like that." Yeah. And then he just did he just disappear. After that, no, or did he stay is, involved? Yeah, with this is what was really weird. Is he he did, um, you know, while she was in the hospital. I think I think that it might have been like after she had died, or when she when they knew that she wasn't going to make it. He actually went to the hospital and met her parents. <gasps> That's so sick. And gave her they he paid them like one million yen, um, which is a little under like five hundred thousand um, dollars. But yeah, he paid what? her. <laughs> Like well, just, I accidentally gave her bad orders. I think he paid her. Paid, I think he paid him. Yeah, he said uh, it was for like for funeral funeral costs. 
Dang. And things like that. And, you know, her parents were from, she was Australian, and her parents were from Australia. And so, you know, they were in a culture that they didn't, they mm-hmm. weren't familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, they, you know, they just took this, took his word for it. They're just like, okay, you know, he sounds up like an upstanding guy. And he looks really, you know, mm-hmm. remorseful. And they didn't know who to go mm-hmm. to about it. So... Okay, so I'm sorry. I do have to say, he did sound like he was kind of sorry that that happened. Granted, he just raped her. Right. But, <laughs> I mean, he was trying to make amends is kind of what it, I'm getting. Or he was trying to avoid arrest. Arrest. Yeah. But, well, okay. That was one, so that was one of the things <laughs> that, because he did this several times through the course of these events. Uh, when he, another one that he did that to, she was going to, like go to the police uh-huh. and and try to you know try to get him uh, get him arrested and, and convicted, uh, but he paid her off and she just took the money and mm-hmm. and just let it go. Huh. Um, the same thing happened with uh, with Lucy. So, I'm gonna, and I don't know if this is explained at all, but what's the rape culture like in? I was wondering Tokyo? that too. Like, is, is it like here where you go to the police and they're like, "Well, what were you wearing?" <laughs> Uh, yeah, they didn't. Um, so he did talk a little bit about that, and of course he goes into a lot of detail about uh, about you know the kind of the incompetence of the the, Jap- mm-hmm. the Metro- Tokyo Metro Police on all these cases, and yeah, um, he didn't say things like that, like that women were were treated in that way, but a lot of them were definitely not taken seriously. Mm. They were hostesses. The police were probably yeah, like, well, exactly. you were in this position where you were getting money to pretend to enjoy this man's company. Mm-hmm. You left the, fa- like I can, like they probably had that already. Mm-hmm. You left the facility, you went somewhere else with them. What did you expect to happen? Right. It's awful. And, and there are definitely a lot of, you know, there were some folks that he talked to in this kind of culture, this hostess culture mm-hmm. that, that had that kind of mentality. Right. That you know the women were just out there. They're like if a host was was like the same thing as a prostitute, and you know if they're doing this, then they should just expect that sort of thing to happen. And, and I know that one one of the guys, um, I don't remember what, it, but it was somebody like in the in the law enforcement or the prosecution or something kind of said that that like he wasn't surprised. It's like if these women are going to go to a person's house. Then that's essentially like giving their consent, right? Ugh. Yeah, that's ugh. yeah. That's so bad. But that's that's prevalent here too. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you went to his house. Yeah. It's like, like you're you, defending yourself now. Like yeah. you're not you're not saying something happened to me. You're defending yourself, trying uh-huh. to convince them that yeah, something needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that this book was written over ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it sounds like he was caught fairly soon. Yeah. So why the 10 years? Because in Japan, they only have court hearings like once a month. So it took six years to finish. Oh, him on the docket? (laughs) Well, I mean, he he would go to court like once a month for six years. What? (laughs) So he wasn't, um, he wasn't like in jail at this time or anything, or was he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was definitely detained. Okay. He yeah. Was. He was in a, you know, um, I don't remember, you know, a, a jail where he could still contact his lawyers and, mm-hmm. and manage his assets and things like that. So he had access to a lot of money. And so he did the same thing with uh, Tim Blackman, who was Lucy's dad, mm-hmm. uh, during the court, you know, during the get the evidence and the hearings and everything. Uh, he and paid him. How much money? Yeah, I gave him a bunch of money. 
and he offered it to he offered it to uh, to Tim, and he offered it to Jane, Lucy's mother. Um, he offered it to some other folks that were other victims that were because when he was finally caught, they had evidence to build cases for like eight, nine, nine different girls, including Lucy. Were they all deaths, like murders, or mm-hmm. were they just rape cases involved with this one? One murder? of them was Corita, the one, the first one that he accidentally so he killed. Only, he murdered two people, mm-hmm. and everybody, the, all the other women had been raped. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Where did they find her body? Like, and how did they connect? him to her yeah this was what was really upsetting mm-hmm. is that the you know the Jap- the tokyo metro police had gotten a lot of tips about this guy in the past mm-hmm. um at least there, there was at least a couple that were you know referenced specifically mm-hmm. in the book um girls that heard about lucy's story and they're like because it, they, it was the mm-hmm. same guy that you know mm-hmm. that they had that had happened to them mm-hmm. so they'd get you know they'd give it uh there was one person who they um, it was a made-up name because she was a you know surviving mm-hmm. victim of a sexual mm-hmm. crime. So I, name is not important because um, it was in this case it was a is a fake name. But anyway, it was a person who had had that, and uh, she tipped him off like three days after Lucy disappeared, and they didn't they didn't follow up. They didn't really follow up, and other other girls had tipped you know said like this guy did this, and the the police didn't they didn't follow up on it or anything. You would think that after they'd gotten so many phone calls about the same guy that maybe they would think, huh, So maybe, maybe we should, we should look, look at this. <laughs> they went to his house um, after, you know, after Lucy had already had already died. And because uh, they were, they did finally, you know, go and follow up on this tip. And they said something about how they saw like some lump, some lumps or something in the back of his car covered up in a sheet. And, you know, people said it was suspicious and so you know he's like he told the police not to come into his house and stuff and and, and they were like okay he shut yeah he shut the door <laughs> and then he you know he came back later and uh and he had you know something wrapped up in a in a sheet and he opened it up and it was his it was his deceased dog who he kept in a freezer <gasps> what because he it was like his only like real friend he'd ever had and he was preserving her body for years in his freezer because he hoped that with cloning technology he'd be he able to. Oh. Mm-hmm. Wasn't she freeze dried? I mean, like nasty, shriveled up and stuff. Probably. I mean, <laughs> but I'm sure there's still usable <laughs> DNA in there, Don. <laughs> this is science. And so, oh. then, okay. <laughs> so then after that, they were just like, okay, and they just were like, okay, just a you know, just a dog. He was just a regular guy freezing his dog. <laughs> yeah. Just leave him alone, people. We're waiting for yeah. science to catch up to him. <laughs> So, what he ended up doing is he went to the LL Bean um, and got some tools and and gear, and he built a tent in his apartment, and he cut her up, mm. and he buried her in a cave, like just right down the down the beach. Wow. Yeah. So he didn't want any evidence, so he got the tent and did it inside yeah. the tent. Yeah, I mean he was, you know. He was smart. Yeah. He built it inside of his house so that the blood so, you know, yeah. wouldn't get on everything. And then all he would have to do is break it down and, just and, carry, and wrap it up and carry it out without leaving any evidence. Yeah. I feel like that would be really hard, honestly. I'm just going to say, like, if you're cutting up a body, there's still a lot of blood. Yeah. Like, to wrap that up and carry it out without that dripping would probably be difficult. So right. Ex- and you'd have it on your clothes. And then if she left any hair or anything else in his apartment. Well, he never denied that. 
she was, she was there. So. Oh, that she right. and okay. there was, I'm sure, evidence that she went on a Dohan mm-hmm. Dohan with him. Yeah, they found they found. So it wouldn't you know, have been so it wouldn't have been unusual. Like he would have been able to explain her hair being there. Yeah. Right. Or her, her fingerprints or something but like that. But not a full body's worth of blood. Yeah. 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 Well, they <laughs> like, there's several pints of blood right here in the spot. Uh-huh. Well, she did come for a date. <laughs> they did an experiment with a, a pig and they put a bunch of fake blood in it and they built a tent for the, you know, to try and re- awesome. replicate and, and they replicated it. I mean, it was a, a lot of people said it was like farcical to the extent that they went to do this, but, uh-huh. um, but they did it, and they proved that somebody could actually do that. Yeah. Okay. So. Hmm. So the thing, yeah. Here's he never confessed to doing any of the the, the killing. Yeah. And he never confessed to raping anyone. He his always his argument is, was always that it was all consensual. They came to my house, yo. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I guess they just wanted to be to be sedated while he did all these things. I don't, I don't know. Every single one of them. All yeah. Them. Amazing because they found you know they found all the tapes that he made and and all that. Um, so th- this is where it got really interesting with the how uh crimes are handled in Japan, and uh, and perhaps this is a testament to like the uh, how like honorable uh, their society is is that when a criminal is caught you know and arrested. They're, and then they're taken, you know, to be asked questions and stuff. They're just expected to confess. Oh. And like 99% of the time. They do? They do. Because it's like, oh, you caught me. And, you know, and they confess. And then they just get the process started. Wow. Oh. And, and so that's what they, you know, and the detectives were trained to like the, to go in there and question them for hours and hours until they were just so bored and exhausted and, you know, um, that they finally, they just confess. And most of the time, you know, it was because they actually did something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there was times where people confessed, just, you know, did a fake confession because. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of you asking these questions, so I'm just going to get out of this well, by saying it. and a lot, at least here in the States, a lot of false confessions come from, you know, if you just tell me what happened, you can go home. There's a and show after on Netflix. eight hours yeah. of not being able to go anywhere or sleeping or anything like that, it breaks you down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder how mu- many of those were actual yeah. confessions or if it was just like, oh my God, yeah, I'd rather go to jail. <laughs> just, just take me, just to get jail. me out of here. But <laughs> you said he never confessed. He, he never, never confessed. He never confessed and, and like the, to the rapes and stuff. He said they weren't really rapes. And to the, the people who died, he said that, you know, it was an accident they or... accidentally made this tent and then cut her up and carried her they and buried were, her. It was yeah. all an accident. It was totally an accident. Or they were sick or, or whatever. And so, you know, he was just... Oh, so, like the bad oysters. That's, yeah. That's a good one. So did they find her body before or did they find the body after they decided it was him? And was I mean? it still in the tent? Um, it, it was I think it had to be out. in the yeah, tent. Yeah, it had been wrapped up in several... Okay. So the tent and yeah. then another layer. Probably. And he buried it in this cave. Um... So the family, you know, for a long time they had been baffled as as why the Japanese, you know, the, the Tokyo Metro Police were so, mm-hmm. so, you know, were so uh, incompetent, why they weren't getting, you know, any any actual progress and stuff. Uh, by the end of the book, um, it was kind of suggested that they knew it was him for a long time. Because he was rich. And 
Well, that maybe that they knew it was him, but they they knew where the body was for a long time, hmm. buried in that cave. Like they already knew, and they didn't want to go and get the evidence until they had the confession, because, like I said, in their in their their trials, confession is more important than evidence. Oh. So they didn't they didn't want to they let they 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 think they knew where it was. And they didn't want to go get it until they had the confession because that was more important. So then once they had the confession, they could get the evidence and it would all just fall huh. into place. That's interesting. So That's I don't know, you know, I don't know how true that is, but that was kind of what they, uh, the conclusion they drew is that they didn't, and it was, you know, in a, in a case in the United States, you'd want to find that evidence evidence as soon so as possible. You use that because to get your confession. By yeah. the time they... Because I already found it. I already know it was you yeah. and yeah. really... You're just wasting time now. But yeah. by the time they Make found her, it, yeah. it was so deteriorated that they couldn't get any of his like DNA evidence mm-hmm. oh. off of her. So hmm. it was it just um, wasn't that useful. And remember, I was telling you about how he was paying people off, mm-hmm. and he, you know, um, her dad actually accepted that payment, and he signed this thing that said, you know, please look into this evidence about this case that, you know. Essentially, like trying to help him uh-huh. not get convicted. What? Okay, wait. So he <laughs> okay, so first of, of all, I was thinking, well, yeah, I would take the money and then make sure that he was still. Yeah, happy. if you're gonna pay me, sure, I'm gonna take I'm your not, money. That <laughs> doesn't mean that I'm signing off looking for my daughter. Or yeah, mm-hmm. or thinking <clears throat> that I'm gonna testify for you, right? <laughs> in exactly. Any former manner. Yeah. Well, that was the you know that was the argument that Tim made. He said by offering the money and. And such that he was even, you know, proving his evidence yeah. more so, or his, yeah. you know, his, his, his guilt. guilt. Um, so what? So what happened with that? Like he took the money, he signed the paper. It was social suicide for him. Like uh. at that, because Tim, his his that thing was he was going to go with the media. Um, he, you know, they said that he had to make a choice that he was either going to trust the the law enforcement or he was going to go with the media and trust that they. Uh, we're going to stir up enough that mm-hmm. things would get moving and stuff would mm-hmm. happen. And so he was involved with the media the whole time. And then he took the money. And then, like, at the end, you know, at this part, he took the money and he just kept doing what he did. And at that point, he was just, like, everybody just completely, they just didn't, they couldn't believe it. And they yeah. thought that mm-hmm. he was like, there's no way that, I don't know, they thought he was like a sociopath or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and in a society where honor is highly valued he took the money and signed a piece of paper saying that i don't think this guy is my daughter's killer mm-hmm. so well and in britain as well because mm-hmm. well uh, and I'm, I'm saying like in tokyo this, yeah. i'm sure this was you know yeah um but yeah he would he had gone to the extent that he got tony blair who was prime prime minister mm-hmm. at the time he actually had like personal conferences with him and the Prime Minister of Japan, and just all these people were just, mm-hmm. like, he had these huge media, uh, you know, these huge conferences that were in the media and reporters. And and then he was like, I'll just take the money? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Did he still anticipate anything happening to him, or was he just done at that point? He's like, I'm going to take this money, I'm done looking for my daughter, I'm done being in the media, I'm leaving now? 
Dang. I don't know. He didn't have a choice after that. He well, took the money yeah. and then they... <laughs> they were like, we're not they even going to talk to you. They set him on fire. That's crazy. So what happened to the guy? That was the other thing that was baffling. Oh. Was that uh, he got convicted uh-huh. of, of eight rape cases and the murder of Corita Ridgeway. Uh, he did not get convicted of the, the murder of Lucy. Even though he can, oh, but he didn't confess. Yeah, he didn't confess. The judges says there said there wasn't enough evidence because when because they found her body, it was too deteriorated to get any usable right. evidence off of it. But they were saying the confession would have overridden that. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He confess. didn't. He never confessed. Later, they um, he appealed, and um, well, I think and the, the the prosecution appealed to to get him convicted, and he never got convicted of. Of killing her, but he did get convicted of drugging her, raping her, and cutting her up, but not killing her. Not killing her. Yeah. <laughs> Does that not imply like once you cut somebody up, they're pretty much dead? Yeah. But you can still get charged with that, but not necessarily the murder. Well, so I guess somebody else may have actually killed, killed her, her and, and then, then just he, cut her up yeah. and disposed of the yeah. body. Mm-hmm. That's awful. How much? How much time did he get? Oh, he got life. He got life. I yeah. And I, I thought he was going to say like two years. Yeah. I thought I was going to have to break something. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a little surprised at some of the things they said that mur- some murder, um, you know, uh, people convicted of murder could get out as early as three years. Mm-hmm. Oh, sick. Yeah. Wow. Um, but he got life in prison and they said that he wouldn't be eligible for any kind of a parole or anything like that for 30 years. And he was in his 50s when he got convicted. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much life. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and that's not so, like, weird. I mean, here we've got laws where you can get convicted of murder and be sentenced for five years, get out in 2.5. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, like I said, I think there's a lot of parallels yeah. to what was going on in, in Japan and what and a lot of the things that we see today in the United mm-hmm. States. So I was thinking when you said that, you know, the, the confession is everything, and he didn't confess. Mm-hmm. And... But he didn't re- confess to the rapes either, and he was convic- he never convicted convinced. for those. Yeah, he never but they confessed had, to oh, any of those. I was going to say, but they had videos, but then he would just say, oh, that's consensual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was thinking, okay, so maybe they'll take his word for it. You know, he didn't confess to this one mm-hmm. because the culture is, I'm going to confess. But he didn't confess to the other stuff either. Yeah. That's and they found him guilty. Was there, was there a jury, or was this all judge? Um, they have, when they're, they're doing their trials, they have three judges. Um, which are like professional, mm-hmm. like law, you know, people, um, and then they also have, I think, three like lay judges is what they. S- and I don't, I don't remember. I don't think that was the case in in his case, but mm-hmm. later they changed it to expedite, you know, the hearings and trials a little more. Um, but yeah, it's like in that the judges were their word was was everything, mm-hmm. and then the family, like family of victims and of cases like that, actually could have a say in in what they thought the. The punishment should be so. I like that. Yeah. 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 It's it inter- it very interesting learning about oh boy, you know how things were, are done over there in Japan. Um, you know, some of it was, some of it is like a little shocking, for, you know, as far as being from a different culture. But some of it was like, you know, this this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I thought it was very interesting. Um, some other fun things, and and you know. Coming out of a book like this, uh, it's it's a weird term to use, but they're um, 
But some fun things is the the Japanese police. He said were known for being very cuddly. Uh, that you know the Tokyo Metro Police had a mascot. Ooh. It was Peepo, and uh-huh. it, it's a little pixie. Oh. <laughs> so interesting. Striking fear into the, the hearts yeah. of criminals <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I was like, hmm, that's interesting choice. Um, but yeah. At the end of the book, um, you know, he did a very good job throughout the whole book not inserting all of his own opinion about anything. It was very much just him reporting the facts as they were and him uh, making sure to include the perspective of the people he talked to because he spent a lot of time with, you know, the investigators Mm -hmm. and Lucy's family and uh, they all, you know, there's enough information in there for a reader to make all their judgments about them, but mm-hmm. he never inserted any of his own judgment. And he saved a little bit of his own perspective until the end of the book, um, where he kind of explained that we want to, you know, we want to read these things and make sense out of the stories and to have it be like, you know, well, this guy was a murderer and serial rapist because, you know, he was a minority and because. He was rejected by a girlfriend and, you know, all these experiences. And then he's like, you know, but there's hundreds, thousands of other people that had the same experience. Mm-hmm. And, they're and just, they didn't kill anybody. Yeah. They're just yeah. out there living, you know, living their life. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense to just explain things that way. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then um, it was really... Like, by the end of this book, I wanted to cry because of all the... Like, you go through this whole thing with, with Lucy's family and her friends, and and then it's got, you know, this picture of her in the back. Oh. At the end, her mom... Um, I know, you know, this is a small consolation to a parent, I'm sure, but she, had, she explained that she felt like this was kind of like Lucy's destiny, that... Uh, that she was... Uh, she was... You know, not meant to um, do her old bones. She said that uh, you know she di- she wasn't meant to live past her twenties because she was supposed to go and and you know this was her purpose. She died to catch a killer and a serial rapist. Yeah, to, to get this. Because he would have he, he would have kept doing it. Yeah. yeah, it's just sad because you know you heard about heard about Carita Ridgeway mm-hmm. and something should have been done then. It mm-hmm. shouldn't have gotten to right. Lucy. But, yeah. but after hearing about all the things he did and all the the crimes he committed, um, you know, it, it is good to know that something was finally done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I got the impression that it did motivate a lot of reform in the you know the Japanese law enforcement, uh, the Tokyo Metro Police, and and that they were, you know, they saw what had been done wrong, and so I'd like to hope that things got better. Right. Yeah. <sighs> But anyway, it was all fascinating. Um, later, this guy Perry, he actually got uh, threatened by like Japanese nationalists. Not, he said he doesn't think it was related to this case, but he had written some other things about um, about the the, the princess, uh, the daughter of the emperor, mm. uh, and her like her dealing with depression or something like that. And they said that it was like a slight against. You know the imperial family. Mm-hmm. How dare you comment on a real and and just just thing to bring up more going through. <laughs> yeah, just to bring up more parallels to like some of the things that go on in the United States is, uh, you know, the ja- the Japanese nationalists. They were like the far right wing, and they would do these 
these protests, and they protested against him, and they'd uh, they go to you know these office these official buildings like the um, you know government buildings, things like that, and they'd get their uh, their flags, which is the rising sun, which to me I was like this is very similar to people wearing raving flags with swastikas. Mm-hmm. The only difference <laughs> is that in it's it's Japan. And they would actually, you know, they'd call ahead and say, like, we're going to go and do this. <laughs> we're going to be here from this time to this time. Yeah, we're going to go. That's not too much and then they would go and they tried to enter the. Permit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they went and tried to enter this building and the security guards went and stopped them and they're like, okay. And they just <laughs> turned around them. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah. So even when. Even I'm going to leave this literature here for you to read. <laughs> so even when they're being extreme, they're still being, like, extremely respectful. <laughs> We are extremists, but we are also polite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's fascinating. I yeah. enjoy getting the culture from the book. Yeah. yeah. And, he, you know, he emphasized that it is still safe to walk in Japan, you know, walk for a woman to walk at 2 a.m. on the streets of Tokyo because this was just one of those right. really off-the-wall cases. I still mm-hmm. wouldn't by myself be walking anywhere at dark. Yeah, by right. myself. Yeah, yeah. Not good policy, especially when I can't really speak the language. Yes, yeah. or understand the culture fully. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So I felt really bad for all of them. I felt bad for Lucy, and yeah. I'm glad I read this book. Oh, I wanted. This is the last thing. I'll close with this. Um, because I wanted to find out why it was called "People Eat Darkness." Oh yes, yeah. And I looked it up, and it was a uh, featured in Psychology Today. Um, a Dr. Susan K. or PhD, yeah, Dr. Susan K. Perry, not related to the author uh, Perry. She asked him like, "Why this title?" And he says, uh, "I I borrowed it with the author's encouragement from the title of a Japanese book, uh, Yami Ogu Hidobido, which translates as "People Who Eat Darkness." Um, in Japanese, eating darkness means flirting with the dark side. Uh, so. He said the important thing that is that it refers to people in the plural, not just one person. In different ways, all the characters eat darkness. The killer, the victim, the family, and everyone who reads the book. Ooh. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad wow. you added that. So, does that make us all eaters of darkness? Yes. It definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. I, thought it was, I thought it was very appropriate. Definitely. <laughs> it definitely applies... All right, so next we have Kelsey. Kelsey. All right. All right, my book is called The Devil's Rooming House, The True Story of America's Deadliest Female Serial Killer by M. William Phelps. Um, Part of the reason why I picked up this book is because on the back it talks about um, how this story, this actual true story, inspired the play and the movie Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm -hmm. And I love that movie, and I've seen it multiple times. And it gave me a chance to rewatch it, which was enjoyable because it's enjoyable every time. But I've, <laughs> as I was reading the book, I could tell like there's not going to be very many similarities to this. <laughs> this is not hilarious. <laughs> this is very sad. <laughs> okay, so my murderess is Mrs. Amy Archer, lady later, Amy Archer Gilligan, because she remarried because her first husband died from mysterious and sudden causes. Did he have diabetes? No. (laughs) I was thinking about our poison connection, but no. This is just arsenic. Just arsenic poisoning. (laughs) 
It wasn't diabetes. Um, mine takes place, the murders start to get kind of realized and talked about around 1910 and 1911. Um, but they opened their house, which they called, what is it called? It's got a really long name. Um, the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. They later called it the Archer Home because that's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I'm she, starting to wonder, did I listen to a documentary about this? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Well, <laughs> <keep> going. <laughs> <laughs> um, they call her later uh, a black widow and an angel of mercy. Um, she did kill two of her husbands, so she's definitely a black widow. Uh-huh. But I, what I have a problem with is angel of mercy. Yeah. Because usually <laughs> yeah, like, that's someone who's like on their deathbed. And you're giving them some kind of peace, Mm -hmm. which is not what she was doing. Yeah. She was taking people into her home for the elderly and chronically invalid. And then whenever they pretty much gave her all the money they had, she needed someone else to come in and give her all their money. So she would poison them with arsenic. So not really a merciful killing there. That's just, I want your money. And now that I have it, I don't need you. I don't need you. Just sounds like another excuse. I do need the space. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) all right. So she. They talk about they don't know what year she was born. They said somewhere between 1873 or 1877 or years later. And then I kind of looked her up again, and then Wikipedia, which is you know, it's Wikipedia. You can't Uh trust what they say, but they say she was born in 1868. So they really don't know. There is a beautiful picture of her. They say she's supposed to be in her 30s. Let me just pull this this up for you guys. There you go. That's a lovely woman in her, oh, yeah. in her, in her 30s. 30s. Oh, man. She looks like she's about wow. 68. Yes. If she's in her 30s, she had some hard living. Some hard times. Huh? That's right. Okay, so she had one daughter uh, who believed to the end that she was innocent, her mother was innocent, mm. or she was part of it the whole time. Yeah. Um, mm. That's where I'd put my money. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so was she the daughter of the first husband or the second? The first husband. Okay. Yes. Um, she, Amy Archer was a self-proclaimed nurse. So when she opened up this house, she says, I'm a nurse. She wasn't a nurse. <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the townspeople, like called her sister Amy in the beginning, you know, uh-huh. before they realized what was going on because they kind of see, it's like the very beginning of the nursing home. So there's not, it's not a thing that people had. Uh-huh. So they kind of see her as this person who's taking in older people that don't really have a place to go and then taking care of them until they die, which is a really great idea, but uh-huh. that is not what was happening. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure at that time period, it was also a lot of like religious institutions do that kind of thing right like not necessarily this like charitable thing yeah because it's through the church yeah right right she did call the people who lived in her house inmates which i was like wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bad sign people wow it's a bad sign she described her home like she this is how she described it as a place of refuge and healing and she's a saintly proprietor so yeah. So one thing that did come out of this is like actual nursing homes, <laughs> but this wasn't one. Wasn't one. Which is really interesting because there's still that issue. There is in nursing homes. It's scary. It's like yeah. these people mm-hmm. who have nowhere else to go, basically. Who at some point can they can't communicate for themselves, mm-hmm. 
and people are going to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So whether it's 1910 or 2018, people yeah. are bad mm-hmm. and they kind of suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, yeah. All right, so our story, like when I started reading this story, it's kind of hard to follow. They're very short chapters, and he kind of gets caught up in describing what's going on at the time kind of overly much. So you start out with a patient named Mr. Mathewson, and he's trying to tell the doctor, somebody's poisoning me. Um, The doctor who is Dr. Howard Frost King. He was the physician for the house. He was the in-house physician from the time it opened to the time it closed. He either was complicit in these crimes, mm-hmm. oblivious, or just incompetent and oblivious. So it's hard to say yeah. what it is. Well, you know, if she called herself a nurse, he could have just said, <laughs> yeah. I'm a physician, no, I'm a I doctor. Think, <laughs> I think when the court and the trial and the law got involved, she had to be like, I'm not really a nurse, but he was actually a doctor. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. kind of scary. So that's how it starts. Like the first thing that happens is this man telling him, somebody's poisoning me. And I save this little jar of lemonade. It's underneath that seat cushion. Can you take it and see if it's poison? Yeah, test that. The doctor drank it. <laughs> He's like, if, if this is poison, we'll both be dead. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not, though. So. <laughs> I'm so confident that it's not. I'm going to drink it. But he didn't die. So. So not poisoned. Not poisoned at that time. Like that, <laughs> that dose cup, right? wasn't yeah. poisoned. Doesn't mean you weren't getting she poisoned. She might have suspected that he was going to save it. Probably. He was getting poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the next chapter introduces a character named Lyman Dudley Smith, who is a retired school teacher. He's 86 years old. He speaks four languages. And he was enjoying a congenial retirement. He used to teach penmanship. He invented the Smith system of penmanship. He's written several essays and books. And then he slits his own throat with a calligrapher's metal quill in July 12, 1911. I'm like, why are you telling us this? This is important. (laughs) So the point of that story. The point. (laughs) Was to talk about the heat wave or the hot wave, as they called it then. Um, it was so hot, people were losing their minds. And it talks about it was in the 90s. And oh at first goodness. you're like, oh, yeah, we deal with all the time. But then you're saying that while the air conditioner blows on right. you. Right. And you're right. drinking your drink full of ice, your fresh water that they didn't have access to. So there is an interesting thing, you know, like it's interesting to think about. Like, Yeah, like we actually had to be outside, yeah. even in some shade yeah. at this degree without. For hours at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With no fresh water. And in the cities, it's so hot. That asphalt, you know, soaks mm-hmm. up all the heat mm-hmm. and it radiates it. There's no clean water. There's no air conditioning. There's nowhere to be cooled down. So it's an interesting point to make, but it does not ever really relate to my story at all. Like, <laughs> it doesn't ever say that it was hot, so she killed these people. She's just going to kill these people regardless she of the temperature. She just wanted their money to yeah. know how it was. So I was like, okay, thank you for telling me that horrible story about this nice <laughs> gentleman who I wanted to be friends with, and now he's dead. Thank you. Yeah. So what, what town was this in? Okay, this happened in... It's in New England. So it's early 1900s New England. It's in Windsor, Connecticut is where the house is. Have you read, heard something about this? No. I'm just thinking about the whole heat issue mm-hmm. in New England, which is a northern state. Mm-hmm. And it's 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. 
that would feel beautiful. <laughs> right? <laughs> As over here in our 100 yes. plus weather, yes. we're like, man, I wish it was 90 degrees. Right. <laughs> but still, again, I mean, if it was 90 degrees and yeah. the electricity Without was gone yeah. and your freezer didn't work and you had no fresh water anymore, it's still not. I mean, people were dying from it. Like, it was actually. People couldn't survive. There was heat, like babies and old people, mm-hmm. not just killing themselves with fancy pens, but like actually <laughs> dying because of the yes. heat. <laughs> well, and even without these kind of, you know, luxuries. Right. If you're not used to that kind of heat at all. Yeah. And then suddenly you're in that kind of heat. For weeks at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were wearing, you know, they have on corsets and they have on their petticoats and they have on their cotton dresses walking around. I know, that's terrible. That's what they were wearing. And then all of a sudden it was 95 and then it got up to the hundreds and... There's, and he'd be arrested for wearing shorts. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, people are dying from the heat. <laughs> yes. Like, all of a sudden, you're just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, somebody, your friend faints. Oh, she died. <laughs> it's it's the heat. <laughs> okay. So, again, not really related to our story at all. Um, but it was hot whenever they started talking about yeah. murders. So they open their house. The I'm going to say the long name again because it's fun to say if I can find it. The Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids in 1907. She opened it with her husband, James Archer. Um, and they started taking in people, taking in inmates, I'm sorry. Inmates. Yeah, inmates. Um, and taking care of them, supposedly taking care of them. Um the people in it are really important, so I made a list of people who were in it. So we have James Archer, who was her first husband, and he died in 1910, suddenly and mysteriously. Later, not so mysteriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Matthewson, who opens our book, and he's telling the doctor that he's being poisoned. We have somebody named Narcissa McClintock. Um, her mother was an inmate in 1909, and they were suing the house for abuse and unbearably unsanitary conditions. And this is the lawsuit that draws the attention of one of our other very important people, who is Carl Goesley. He's neighbors of the Archers. He's a freelance reporter. He's also an insurance salesman. And he is also the treasurer for the Windsor Rogue Detecting Society. Yeah, yeah, that's who he is. Um, And he's reading this newspaper story about this um, investigation into the... Amy Archer not taking care of these people, and he starts to investigate it then. So around 1909, and he investigates it and builds a case against her until 1916, whenever she's arrested. So through the entire thing, wow. he's like, I now know that you're a bad guy, and I'm going to make sure you get caught. So he goes to his editor at the Hartford Current and says, this is what's happening. I think that's a real story. So the editor of the newspaper tells him to investigate it. Get all the stories you can, do all the research you can, but we're not going to print it until we know something is actually happening. Mm -hmm. So he was 22 in 1909. So he's this young guy, wife, small kid, and he's like, I'm going to research this. So he's one of my favorite characters. And he's the treasurer of the Windsor Rogue Detecting Society. We need to start our own rogue detective society. (laughs) 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 So we talked about the doctor who (laughs) was either just didn't care and was getting money or was actually involved in it and somehow getting paid. And then later we have somebody named Zola Bennett, 
who's also one of my favorite characters. So after all these things have happened, because it just gets worse after they start Mm -hmm. investigating this um, alleged abuse, um, they have the Connecticut State Police have Zola go to the house as an undercover private investigator. She moves in, reporting that she's a very wealthy widow, and she starts asking all the inmates there now about other people, their relatives, and what was suspicious. So she, who is a woman in her late 50s or 60s, um, is part of the reason also why they have a strong case against her. So Carl and Zola are my two favorites Mm -hmm. in this this book. And then we have Frederick, where are you? No, Franklin Andrews. And this is the the saddest character to me because they introduce him very early on. He lives in the house for over two years, which is very a very long time. Right, to live in the house. <laughs> to yeah. live in this house. Did he have a lot of money <laughs> to he, give them? He wasn't. He wasn't giving it up. That's the thing. He it, was like, I'm not signing that it, paper. That is true. <laughs> like initially, like I'll talk about how she got people in there, but you follow this Franklin Andrews for a long time, and I'm like, oh, like this. He's going to be the guy that kind of brings her down too. Which he does, but only after he dies. Mm. So you follow this guy and he dies. So Franklin is nice. He's like, no, I'm attached to you and now you've done. Mm. <laughs> I wanted you to live, Franklin. I wanted you to live. Oh, so there are story. So we open this house. Suddenly people are saying living there is not good. And she's all the time now defending herself. Carl is investigating, mm-hmm. and things just getting worse because they start looking at how many people have died and how much arsenic she's buying. We <laughs> 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 have rats. Oh, yes. that's, yeah. I mean, this is an old home, y'all. <laughs> yes, Jeez. and that's exactly what she says. Like, I got a lot of mice and rats around here. I've got to buy this much arsenic. <laughs> Um, oh, we also have Michael Gilligan, where she gets her second last name later. She marries him after her first husband dies in 1913, and in 1914 he dies. But it's like December to February, basically, nice. because they're only married for three months. Wow. Um, yeah. She got tired of him pretty fast. Yeah. Very fast. She, I made a huge mistake. <laughs> <Here's Marcinic. laughs> Let's fix this. Yes, I have... <laughs> Give me, sign this, and then um, yeah. this at the same time. So at one point, in, from January to February in 1914, she bought a pound of poison. So during the winter, she bought a pound of poison, which I was like, a pound of poison, that sounds like a lot. But it's more than a pest control company buys, like, over the course of months. Wow. So Dang. in the course of weeks, she's bought this much arsenic. And another sad thing is she would send the people who live in the house to go down to the store and buy arsenic. So there are records of people who have signed to buy this that were later exhumed and they died from the poison that they bought at the store. She's not a nice lady. So then there's this really interesting part where it, it shows in 1911, 1912, and 1913 how many people were living in the Archer home and how many people died. And then it compares it to a Hartford house. So there was another house nearby doing the same thing. And it says how many people they had living there and how many people died in that amount of time. So in 1911, the Archer house had 10 inmates and two died. That's not, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. 1912, there were 10 people living and 15 died. What? Yes. So... <laughs> 
How do you do that? As, as soon <laughs> as they're dead, they bring someone in. So, yeah. oh. so whenever they are researching, so at this point, there's ten people living, and then this many people had died at that at that time in the year. So, wow. and then 1913, there's ten living, and then 13. So her house could take ten. She always had ten, and then other like. 13 people died in 1913. Wow. In the Hartford house, which is not very far away, there were 59 people living there in 1911, and 13 died. In 1912, there were 67 people living, and three died. Wow. In 1913, there were 67 people living there, and four died. She just got all the ones who were ready to Yeah, to they die. were just really sick. It's not <laughs> so her fault. Old. They're old people. They're fixing to die, which is what she tried to say in court, which yeah. didn't help her at all. No. <laughs> didn't help her. Didn't help her. So Franklin Andrews, he lives there. What years did he live there for? Because he was there soon after her first husband died. So James Archer dies in 1910. Soon after, um, Franklin moves in. Um, and then... He dies in 1914 also. So 1914 is not a good year. That's the year she kills her husband and poor Franklin Andrews. Um, so, yeah, he is there. He's, he's like a handyman almost for the time when she's not married to Michael. So he's fixing fences. He's mowing the lawn. He's doing all that kind of work. So he's an able-bodied person. Mm -hmm. He's not overly sick during this time. Um, he would write letters to his family, like he would write letters to several of his relatives, and he would kind of, he like never turned against her, but like just he would like, this person died, and this makes this many people so far since I've been here. And he like, in several of his letters, he's right, he just writes, they come and they go. Yeah. So he just sees all these people come in and then die. And it's like he's writing these letters, like he's not going to say anything against her, but he's like, there's this proof that he's sent out mm -hmm. to his family that this many people died and this, you know, this is maybe yeah. not looking so good. So <laughs> can poor, poor can you get me out of here? Yeah, maybe could you come get me, <laughs> But yeah, he is very sad. She does ask him for money. So whenever you sign in, like you sign contracts and there was like, you sign up and you give me $1,000 and you don't have to pay anything else because that's for your life. So $1,000 till you die. Um, or you could pay monthly or weekly depending on your income, like if you're on some kind of... Like she had no set contract. It depends on who you are, mm -hmm. how much money she could get right now, yes. and what you had, what else you had to offer. So if you pay me a thousand dollars right now, you are dying next week. That's right, right because I need someone else who's going <laughs> to also pay me a thousand dollars. So and some people it was a thousand, some people seven hundred. For there was a couple that she was trying to make room for, and that's why Franklin had to go, and she charged them five hundred for the pair of them. So they were getting a steal yeah. to get in here. She was getting desperate for any amount of money because her husband, so this is 1914's year when she really takes a turn. So she kills her husband. The night before he dies, she has him sign a will. He's, she's like, you need to, you know, we've been married for a while now. Um, you should make it's sure been you sign two this. months. Yeah. <laughs> We're settled into this relationship, so I need you to sign this last will saying everything you have is mine after you die. And then he was so sick after that he like never really comes back to consciousness. Oh man! So, but after that, 
they're still like the children, his children who, you know, are grown are contesting that. Like they mm-hmm. don't want to give her all that money that, you know, they've only been married for this long yeah. and now he's died suddenly. So she is desperate almost for money at this point. So she then kills Franklin because she's written him several letters asking for loans, which he doesn't respond to. So it's time for him to go to make room for this new couple who paying very much less money than everyone else is. She would, like, after they lived there, she would also have them sign over, like, if they had land, if they had jewelry, if they had any kind of assets. Like, she would take trips to their banks with their written permission and get their money. Like, she's in it for the money. And she just didn't manage it well. <laughs> yeah, because, like, $500 in the early 1900s yeah. was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. She, she didn't yeah. manage it well. Mm-mm. Not at all. Um, so after after Franklin Andrews dies, one of his sisters is like, this isn't right. I was just talking to him. He visited me not that long ago. And she t- makes up this story about how he had boils and he was chronically sick and all of this. And the sister is like, she's not having any of it. Then we have the couple who move in. I don't know if I wrote the, their names down. But they die not very long after they move in. It, uh, her name's Alice Gowdy. And she wants her to call her own doctor, Dr. Emma J. Thompson. So the doctor comes. She stays with her. She's having severe stomach pain, diarrhea, vomiting, burning in her throat and stomach, which was the same symptoms as everyone else who was dying, mm-hmm. if you couldn't guess. Um, and it's quick. It's like it comes on. And then they're dead. It's like a really bad stomach flu that kills you. Yeah. Um, So this doctor stays for several days. The woman starts to improve. So the doctor's like, these are the instructions. You're a nurse. (laughs) Follow (laughs) these instructions. And then if anything happens, call me back. So she calls her back a couple days later. And she's like, yeah, she's really worse. And you should come back. She's like, why didn't you call me before now? And then she dies. And the do- the doctor's still like, mm, I'm not. Huh. Let me see sure your credentials. Seriously, <laughs> no one ever asked for con- credentials. The police do later, but but not not soon. So then the sister of Franklin Andrews starts working with the police and Carl, who's still investigating. And they there's a, a great chapter, one of my favorite called uh, grave robbers where they're like sneaking in to secretly exhume these bodies and check out like the autopsies because the people who died in the house the bodies were taken away as soon as they were dead Mm -hmm. so if it was two three you know it was in the middle of the night somebody comes to collect the body she also insisted that they were embalmed immediately after so they were picked up and embalmed right after they die um, the doctor who would do any kind of autopsy is the doctor who lives in the house, who would basically just write whatever she said mm-hmm. on the death certificate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sh- they're all thinking, like, nobody's going to look at this. Yeah. He has to be involved somehow. I mean, either he is or he's just completely like, I have this job and I like this job. I don't have to do anything. She tells me this. I write that. My job is done. So he could just be living this life thinking this is the easiest life or he could, he could be getting some of the money. And or a little side action. Ooh. <laughs> Didn't think of that. <laughs> Didn't think of that. Oh. But with all the... <laughs> 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 
forgot what I was going to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they start exhuming bodies with the permission of Andrew's sister. They start opening him up, and they're talking about there's no odor of decomposition. And this is two years after he's died. Hmm. There's no odor of decomposition. Um, as soon as the organs start to get, the organs and the tissue get cut open, they start to smell arsenic. And they, he, the doctor who was doing the um, autopsies talked about how they look like they were buried for two days, not for two years. Um, they took samples from all the organs because if it talked about, because some embalmers, like the embalming fluid used at the time, sometime contained arsenic. The um, embalming fluid that they used did not, which is important because mm -hmm. there should be no arsenic. Um, they also talk about how there could be like trace amounts just from the soil sometimes. But they found the um, in the tissues and the organs, which should be, it's impossible because during the embalming process, it's not flown through that mm -hmm. way. It should only be like, it's not in the bloodstream is what they say. It shouldn't be in the bloodstream. It's just everywhere else. So the doctor got all these samples and proved that this guy died from arsenic poisoning. <laughs> and then they just started exhuming many other people. Um, she gets arrested. So May 1916 is when she's arrested. She's charged initially with just Franklin's murder. And then they're still doing the exhumations and doing like making sure, finding people who mm -hmm. were um, also murdered by arsenic poisoning, which is written arsenical poisoning. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but mm. I'm like, hmm. It's not just arsenic poisoning, it's arsenical. <laughs> Sounds kind of funny. <laughs> 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 um, so whenever she's tried, like her first time in 1916, she is charged with five murders. Um, she gets found guilty to first degree murder and sentenced to hang. The problem with that is one of the murders, it wasn't just arsenic, it was also, she was murdered with arsenic and strychnine. And the lawyer was that was prosecuting her was warned, don't talk about that murder because it's going to bring in questionable doubt, reasonable doubt mm -hmm. with all this other stuff. So she, they finished the trial. She's found guilty. They're going to hang her. Then the governor steps in, and he granted her a stay of execution, partially because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And then they start to bring in all the... they. They say her case needs to be heard by the court of errors. So, and that one death where she was also had strychnine poisoning was what kind of brought in the doubt. So then she has a second trial. And during this trial, they say she was addicted to morphine and that she's crazy and it's not her fault. So this is where they're going now. Mm -hmm. Which was not brought up at all during the first trial. Right. Um, they do talk about... They have people come in and talk about her family and how they were all crazy. It said one, which is really like the wording on this was really terrible, but they say that she had a sister who was born an idiot and died when she was 11. So I don't really know what they considered at that time to be labeled as an idiot and what being labeled as that caused her death. They didn't know details on that. <laughs> yeah. Then they talk about how she had a brother who would spend all day playing music in front of a mirror. So either that's true or it's all just stuff brought in to make her, to get her off. Mm -hmm. 
Her whole family's crazy, so she has to be so crazy, that's right? Crazy. <laughs> and it's hard to say, like, was she really crazy and they just didn't bring it up? They talk about, like, when she was she got married, she hired, um, to her first time with James, that she hired all these, like, carts and, like, horse carriages type things to take the people who were at the wedding to the reception. But there were no people at the, you know, the wedding. wedding? Yeah, she just hired these things. And there was no one to take. So to give the impression that there were a lot of people, maybe? I guess. I mean, it could be that. I don't know. Or she's just crazy. Um, so after this second trial, her sentence is changed to life. So she gets life in prison. And then five years later, she has a mental break or fakes a mental break. And um, she gets transferred to the state hospital for the insane. And then that's where she lives the rest of her life. Yeah. And her, like what it says, like what she did to be like, we're not handling her anymore, is she would, she started acting like she couldn't understand what anyone was saying and wouldn't do anything. So that really <laughs> just seems like, I just want to get out of here. This place is not good. Let's try somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yes. Mm. So... What I find interesting is what you had mentioned at the beginning, that she was a serial killer. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just get this image of a serial killer being somebody who goes out and hunts, not somebody who brings them to you. You know, I mean, it just mm -hmm. seems weird. But she uses the same method every time she kills somebody, yeah. mm -hmm. with exception of the first one. She was probably trying it out. Yeah, yeah. like, how do I do this? <laughs> when I makes right? a little arsenic and a little strychnine yeah. in there. <laughs> See what happens. See how it yeah. goes. Oh, there's also some talk about how lemonade at the time was like the cure for stuff. So like in 1911, whenever yeah, you're sick, you get lemonade. <laughs> and I, apparently it was really easily poisonable by arsenic. Oh, yeah. I guess it hit the taste. Mm -hmm. It was a little bitter, but a little sweet too. Yeah. yeah. So then we have the movie or the play link. And what happens is the playwright, he gets access to all of the documents, the court documents from her case. And, and then he decides to make a comedy? Yeah, he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna read all this and I'm gonna make it funny. <laughs> I'm gonna make it funny. And he did an excellent job. <laughs> <laughs> so in nineteen forty one is when the play by Joseph Kesserling comes out. And then in nineteen forty four the movie directed by Frank Capra, starring Cary Grant, is released. And I rewatched this movie, and it is just as hilarious today as I remember it was. So in this version of this awful story, there's two ladies, two old ladies that live in a house who have one room to rent. And they, like, they rent this room out to older gentlemen who have no one else, and they're just kind of, have, they have nowhere else to go. They may not have any money. And she's like, they're like, yeah, we can let you stay here. And then you can drink this, and then we can bury you in the cellar. <laughs> so there's two sisters, and then they have a brother. And their brother thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. So this is kind of the link. They, they have a crazy brother. So this is the, the main link. There's arsenic poisoning, and there's a crazy brother. And that's the link to this. That's it. Yes. <laughs> and then the movie and the play follow the nephew, who's Mortimer Brewster. And he's, he just finds out he's leaving for his honeymoon, and he finds out that day that his aunts are murderers. So he finds a body in this trunk, and he's, first he doesn't know who did it. He asks the aunts, and they're like, that was what totally body? us. <laughs> no, 
They're like, no, that's they. They like that's Mister So and So. We killed him. <laughs> like, and then he's just like, just his reactions and like the follow through of this whole story is just hilarious. But basically, at the end of this, there are twelve total bodies poisoned, buried in the cellar, and they use wine as their carrier for the poison. Mm-hmm. It's elderberry wine, and they use arsenic strychnine and cyanide so they're not there's no risk in what they're doing there's so much poison in this yeah you're gonna die and then they have the brother bury the bodies and they tell him they're yellow fever victims so he goes and he buries the yellow fever victims then there's a brother who shows up who's like a like a crazy murderer brother what another one yeah (laughs) Um, his name's Jonathan, and it's just hilarious. So if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it because it's so funny. And tell us the name of it again. Arsenic and Old Lace is the name of the movie. All right. It's hilarious. I just recently watched my copy on VHS because <laughs> I still have one of those. But yes, it's horrible. She was a terrible person taking advantage of the elderly, trying to use that, saying, oh, they're old, they're going to die anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have Carl, who comes along and saves the day. And then we have Zola, who's like, yeah, I'm a little old lady, but I'm going to bring you down. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my two favorite people in this story. Interesting cast of characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I read the book Blood Warning, the true story of the New Orleans slasher. Ooh. And it's written by John Dillman. And this happened to the, at the last book I read is the author was one of the police officers mm-hmm. on the case. Um, so as I was reading this book, I went back to the title and I'm like, the New Orleans slasher. It sounds like he's like a serial killer, like mm-hmm. murdering tons of like people. Like Jack the Ripper. Right? Yeah. No, two. He killed two people oh. <laughs> within just a short amount of time. Okay. Still bad, but... Yeah. Right. Did he get not, stopped before he, like, went full-blown yeah, serial he's, killer? He's, he's not the hillside strangler. And yeah. All these victims. I mean, it just seems so weird. So, anyway, um, what happens is this one guy gets murdered. And when they go to the scene, he has been um, stabbed to death. What year is this? Do we? Oh, yes. This okay. is 1980. Oh, For okay. some reason. <laughs> the 80s. Uh, the yeah. 80s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so he um, he gets on the scene. All of the, there, there's blood everywhere. And they can tell that the guy tried to get away. And that he was just being chased with somebody who was uh, with a knife. And that he had defense wounds on his hands. Uh, trying to shield himself from the knife. And then eventually they just slit his throat Mm. so it was very brutal Mm -hmm. and the other the other one was the same he he was found in a hotel uh with the same wounds i guess the best way to say it um throat slitting as well so it goes on the rest of the book is talking about um how they solved this murder it was a very fast read Mm -hmm. so it it was it was very interesting so they have three suspects and the two that i can remember are big frank and crazy johnny yes they both have nicknames (laughs) (laughs) i I guess it wasn't crazy johnny that seems too easy (laughs) (laughs) so 
these guys seem so like, oh my gosh, I would not want to be near either one of them. They seem very hot-headed and, you know, they're going to go off the deep end at any second and they're drifters, you know. So this one guy, um, I guess it's crazy Johnny they start talking about, um, he was described as being like Ted Bundy because he was very handsome. Mm -hmm. But when they talked to him, they said when he is nice, that's when he's at his most dangerous. Hmm. Um, When he's yelling and kind of crazy acting, that's when he's like, you're just putting on a show. Yeah. I mean, it's more like, Oh, I love you, man. You know, and Mm -hmm. just, but when he's, you know, people, he'd been barred from the bars. Hmm. Because of his fighting. (laughs) 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 And uh, the bartenders were all afraid of him. Um, And so it was, it basically comes down to that's who they decide has done it. And they get the lawyers and everything's starting to go. Well, um, they didn't do a trial by jury. They did it by judge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a reason for them doing that, uh, they uh, obviously the defense thought that it would be better <clears throat> if they did it that way. And so there were two crimes, and they thought that he needed to have, they wanted to try them both at the same time instead of separately. Mm-hmm. And they figured that he would, um, they would have a better case. The police did. Um, so anyway, comes down to the fact that he gets um, convicted of these murders. Actually, I take that back. He gets convicted of one, mm-hmm. not the other, which is like unheard of mm-hmm. because they are saying if you don't get convicted of one, then that means you really didn't do the other one. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that the blood samples that were taken did not match his the um i think there were fingerprints that did not match his and this is what crazy who johnny i think it was johnny crazy johnny Johnny. and big frank Frank. okay yeah big frank has been like we don't think it's you anymore yeah Yeah. Uh uh-oh he's uh yeah big frank big frank would eat lettuce and apples i think and drink and he was big and so he was very scary and yeah but Crazy Johnny was crazy. <laughs> um, so they convicted him without any real evidence, just the fact that he's crazy and people are afraid of him because he gets into bar brawls? Yeah, so the first guy who was murdered, he is not, uh, that's the one he's convicted for. Mm-hmm. And the second one, um, he was not convicted for that one. Um, so the part that I love about reading these books that are older is I get to do a quick Google search (laughs) and where are these people now? And, uh, believe it or not, crazy Johnny is free. What? So as of June, 2017, he, um, he's out of prison. How old is he now? How old is he now? 68. He is 68. Still of good murdering age. Yeah. yeah. So he was in prison for 36 years. Um, but they said that the evidence did not prove. Mm-hmm. So was he even guilty? Well, they were also saying that the police hid evidence. 
Um, Was it Big Frank? That it may have been. Uh, anyway, that um, he was gay. One of them, the, the two victims were gay. Oh. And so they were they were going to like gay and lesbian bars. And one of the things I read in this article here was that um, Crazy Johnny, to get money, would do that in exchange for sex or to get drinks. Mm-hmm. And um, so that is the part that they tried to hide because they didn't want anybody to know about that, that it would... The Not police tried to hide that? The police did. Yeah. Well, and I think it comes back down to prejudices. Anyway, I thought it was very fascinating reading the book. And I'm like, they're so guilty. I mean, th- this is just crazy, these murders. Um, let me see here. I've got my little notes. There was no activity after the first two murders. I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. So these him. Yeah. But these crazy people are out wandering around and they're doing crazy things and they're being barred from the bars. <laughs> I'm like, why are you not picking these people up for something? For something, yeah. You know, you're letting them roam free and everybody knows they're nuts. I feel like that happens all the time. Yeah. Like, there's so many people that are yeah. walking free now. People <laughs> are like, you should be in jail. <laughs> right. Um, oh, and this one's very fascinating to me. Okay. I'm going to turn to this page, 215. <laughs> Denise, you're going to love this. Okay. So they had called some psychiatrists. Um, and they talked about doing a regular trial versus a trial by judge. Mm-hmm. And doing a trial by judge, uh, the judge knows a bunch of stuff already, so mm-hmm. you don't have to set the stage. And a lot of times it's sh- a lot of showboating between lawyers and all this stuff. Um, so you don't have to have two different psychiatrists and mm-hmm. um, all this stuff. <sighs> So anyway, this paragraph starts with, both psychiatrists are called whores by cynical insiders, including the police, because they sell their services to whomever bids for them. I can't recall a psychiatrist paid by the defense ever saying the defendant is just a hard down... Okay, I can't say that. Anyway. (laughs) But it's like, that is so sad to me. Just to think of our justice system and people being paid off and you know it, it mm-hmm. goes back to the birth of the FBI what yeah. you're talking mm-hmm. about it's just so disheartening mm-hmm. anyway okay so he was compared to Ted Bundy not just because of his looks but because he would get you to put your guard down and then he would go in for the kill Yeah. alright like Ted Bundy oh my arm is hurt can you help me load my groceries <laughs> <laughs> Why, sure, kind gentleman. You're so handsome. Yes, I will. <laughs> right, because oh, women you want me cannot... to get into the bag? Is he to put them way back there? Okay, okay. Want me to climb in. Okay, sure. You look nice. That's funny. Okay, so I think that's all I have to say. Mine was pretty short and sweet, but I loved it. I mean, I just I love the the book and what's going on now. I feel like I'm like unsure though. Like is did crazy, did crazy Johnny do, do it? it? Yeah. Cuz I mean if there was different blood and different fingerprints. Did was they there ever someone take else involved? Big Frank's blood and compare that? Like where's Big Frank now? Taking <laughs> <laughs> his lettuce and apples? Right? <laughs> I know and that's what's so I mean it's just we don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's what's hard about the justice system. I mean, the way they talk about it here, it mm-hmm. sounds like he was wrongly convicted. Yeah. You know? Like, could he have been? He was just a crazy dude. Right. Prostituting himself for money and drinks. And mm-hmm. he was very violent and very, you know, aggressive. And, I mean, all these things. Yeah. And maybe even if he didn't do them, maybe... Okay, I shouldn't say that. Did, he could have done something else that we just don't know about. Right. right. But then you read this... And it's like so convincing that he mm-hmm. did do it. It's yeah. like, oh my gosh, for him to get off mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Well, I think that comes down to the fact that the investigating officer wrote the book. Yeah. I, yes. I don't think even if you were like, here's DNA evidence that says this other person did it. I don't think that officer would ever backtrack. Right. I think he'd be like, they did it together. <laughs> like, I'm one way or the other, I was right. That's yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's hard for me to think about. So, such a different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And then it really makes you question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when people are put away, um, it makes you question whether they're it's you know they're the ones mm-hmm. who really did stuff. Right. Um, it does say in this article that I printed. Where's the uh, article from? This one is from the Advocate, which I believe is a New Orleans newspaper. Okay, and it was um, June of 2017. There was a newer one that says that the um, the police are still trying to overturn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still want him back in jail. Mm-hmm. But then they're saying, okay, so we can't retry because we don't have new evidence and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, we just want him to say that he was guilty of one part of it or whatever this was. That happens kind of often. Again, they're not willing to backtrack. They're not willing to say... We made a mistake. Yes. So he got released not because he served his time? Or they he served his time and then they want to... Put him back in? For the other crime? Well, I he probably... He got out early because they're mm-hmm. saying he was innocent. That there was not enough... Well, I don't even was, know if innocent is the word. There was, was it, not enough uh, evidence to was, prove that he did Was it. his conviction overturned? Um... That's a really interesting question. Because they, they could have just um, not necessarily overturned his conviction, but said, we can give you a new trial. They uh-huh. said that they threw out his murder conviction and life sentence. Well, there you go. Yeah, so it was, sounds like it was overturned. And it, um, this other section over here says that uh, the Innocence Project of New Orleans is who mm-hmm, yeah. who got him off. Um, says that he is the tenth life prisoner from this era that the organization has helped free. That's awful. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he's innocent to me. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, the evidence, the blood evidence, and the fingerprints—they were they're not his. Yeah, like. So there was also um, the the second murder was in a hotel, mm-hmm. and there was a um, the first one was in the street. No, like it alley? was at his home. Oh, the first at, one was at a home. I, I believe, yeah. Oh, at the victim's home, or yes, <laughs> at Crazy Johnny's house. Because <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah, Crazy, Johnny's yeah. house. <laughs> Crazy Johnny doesn't have a home. Yeah, <laughs> he's that's where he can't. <laughs> um, 
so this guy was visiting. He was in town. Um, he actually lived in Houston, and he was mm-hmm. very successful. And um, he had dropped off a friend and was going back to his hotel and somehow picked up Crazy Johnny. They're, that's what they're saying mm-hmm. happened. Um, but they found a hat in the hallway down probably 50 feet or so from his hotel room and the hair on it was from an african-american person and then also the security guard at that hotel who was crazy was, johnny african-american no oh okay no so it's more evidence that he can do it <laughs> <laughs> so um i believe this is the picture which does not look like a Ted Bundy, but I don't know the blonde hair and the mustache. Mm-hmm. The one on my computer or on on my phone is a little bit more. So this is now, right? Or yes, now. that's yeah. But then there's another one here, so he doesn't look at all like that. Anyway, so uh, at that hotel that night, just shortly would have been shortly after the murder or about the time of the murder, uh, the security guard out in the back of the hotel was basically run into by some African-American person darting out of the building um, and just taken off, ran into her, just mm-hmm. collected himself and took off. Can't be identified. He's gone. And I'm thinking, aren't there cameras? But I guess they didn't have cameras everywhere mm-hmm. the back 80s. then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, where are the cameras? Oh, Can't you find anything? Just track their cell phones. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, um, so those were some other things that w- went against. Mm-hmm. So the only thing against him is that he was crazy and he would prostitute himself for drinks and money yeah. that and he, he was in bar fights and he carried a knife that was like the murder weapon but there was like, no blood evidence on that knife saying that um, he was the murderer i don't think so yeah i think if there was blood evidence on that there wouldn't be an overturned yeah thing yeah yeah man so but who's to say maybe it was better that Crazy Johnny was off the street? Maybe it yeah. saved somebody's life. Yeah, but there's still a murderer out there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's probably different. Yeah. <laughs> but it never happened again. There in that city. Or maybe That's that true. area. That's true. Yeah. You know maybe. how they didn't talk to each other. Yeah. Especially in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is mine. No, that yeah. doesn't sound oh, like that. That sounds murder. an awful lot like what just happened over here, but because it happened over here, it's not the same it's guy. Not the same. It could be a different state. Yeah. That's true, because that was uh, the Golden State Killer. That was that mm-hmm. whole thing. That was an excellent book, by the way. I that did was. read that. <laughs> <laughs> he could have died. Yeah. 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 Because this was not a nice part of town, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it had these kind of people there. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah. Anything could have happened. You could have moved. Yeah. True. It is kind of coincidental, though. <laughs> that like oh we put crazy johnny away and now no one died in this in this way yeah in <laughs> this way in this way so uh let me just tell you about crazy johnny has an iq of 59 oh mm. was known in the quarter as crazy johnny he uh talked about mixing pcp with whiskey that's bad and, yeah. had, <laughs> and had actually um, <laughs> boasted about the killings. Well, a crazy drug addict who's drinking PCP and whiskey. <laughs> yeah. 
maybe gets his street cred from those. <laughs> yeah, it's from that kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's so much more I could say. There's one other point I wanted to make about what his release um, terms are. Oh, here they are. He can't leave the state without court permission. Can't leave the farm for more than 18 hours at a time. And the must farm? check. Yeah, he moved to some farm. Yeah. Okay. So he must check in weekly with the federal probation office. Let me just say, that's, that still gives him plenty of time to get out and do stuff. 18 hours, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's free. But it, but, he, but it doesn't sound, I don't know, it doesn't sound like his conviction was overturned if he's still, because like, he's still on probation. That is a good point. That's very so, strange. So, I mean, they, so, I don't know. Yeah. It reminds when, me of, like, did you ever watch Making a Murderer on Netflix? <laughs> About the guy who gets convicted of murder, and then he's not actually murder, and then he gets out, and then he does murder someone. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That sounds like your books. Mm-hmm. Or the, the, <laughs> Or was it the one that um, commits a murder and then writes about it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. If your conviction's overturned, then you wouldn't be on. You, yeah. No. Parole or whatever. Probation. So I'm wondering if they maybe did, um, oh gosh, what's it called when they give you a new trial, but you still have to like, resubmit for uh, bail right so they could have given him bail with these conditions yeah and then it's up to the state whether they want to retry him or not but if all that evidence was proved to not be useful and at this point that case is closed Mm -hmm. so they're not going to get any new evidence the best thing they might be able to do is just to keep him on that type of probation yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, but crazy Johnny. I would think that if, if if his conviction was overturned, he would be considered a free man. Yeah, innocent. Yeah. So it says no physical evidence ties him to the Heinz murder. Yeah. So they say that no reasonable juror, after carefully and impartially considering all of the evidence, would find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I wonder if he still acts crazy. He might have mellowed out. No more whiskey and PCP for yeah. 30 days. Exactly. <laughs> well, and this article does go on to say that he was um, working for years at the warden's house and all the while professing his innocence. Hmm. He was considered Warden Burrow Kane's most trusted hand. Hmm. So I think, yeah, the no whiskey and PCP mm-hmm. probably had a lot to do with yeah. that. What was his IQ before? not tested (laughs) (laughs) we have no idea (laughs) so anyway they did talk about this book a little bit in one of the articles that I read and so I don't know you'll have to read them both and tell me what you think (laughs) if he's guilty or not if he should be out so I think I'm a little I don't know, in between there. It sounds like he should have been taken out of society for a while, yes. but also there's still two murderers out there. Yeah. Potentially two murderers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 
crazy one. So we end with an unsolved mystery. Yeah. Mm, I don't like the unsolved ones. <laughs> That's what you said. You said you don't like to think of those people still being out there, Dawn. Out there, that? out and about. <laughs> but he's, how old, what do we say he was? 68? 68. Yep. Well, he's probably 69 now. So, I mean, yeah. He's not in prime murdering years, yeah. but he's not non-lethal. That's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he probably wouldn't uh, murder in that manner mm-hmm. if that was him. Yeah. Unless he was drinking the whiskey and PCP again. Yeah. Right, it might give him unexplained energy. Yeah, <laughs> drug strength. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I. Never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. That was some good, some good murder talk. That was. That was, yeah, awesome. I think it was a good time frame too. I mean, because we had early 1900s from both of you, mm-hmm. and then yeah. 2000s, yeah. 1980. Yeah. I don't know how I keep picking up those books. <laughs> <laughs> Probably cover design is all the same. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is it. <laughs> You're drawn to. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Blood Warning, though. What is that title? Does that have a meaning? No. Okay. It doesn't. That I... Yeah, that you'd piece together. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering about that. It's like none of this sounds like there was a lot of blood. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a warning for anything. <laughs> Except too for late maybe, for that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you see all that blood. It's too late. <laughs> yeah, stay away from the French <laughs> Quarter. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of. Do we like murder? You will hear us again. (laughs) (laughs) Find out what we read next time.